Good morning again. Our title for today is Grateful for God's Grace. Looking at the story of Samson, I know there's a lot of verses there, but when you look at a narrative, you've got to look at different scenes. But of a way of introduction, the Hebrew word translated grace is hen. And it literally means favor. It could be translated kindness or goodwill. It occurs around 60 times in the Old Testament. It comes from the root word meaning to bend or stoop in kindness to another as a superior to an inferior. To bend or stoop in kindness to another as a superior to an inferior. Now the Greek word for grace is now this lost how I pronounce it, I'm sorry. Karyos, meaning goodwill, loving kindness, or favor. And that occurs over 140 times in the New Testament. Therefore, you can define grace as the unmerited favor of God toward men. A.W. Tozer puts it this way, quote, Grace is the good pleasure of God that inclines him to bestow benefits upon the undeserving. Its use to us, sinful men, is to save us and make us sit together in the heavenly places to demonstrate to the ages the exceeding riches of God's kindness to us in Christ Jesus. End of quote. Now you will not find the word grace in our text, but you will find the grace of God being extended throughout the entire story. By the way, the book of Judges may well be the darkest book of the Bible. It tells of a time when Israel was a nation that had lost its way. It had become so entangled with the culture and society around them that God had commanded that they fully sever themselves from it. There were no longer a distinct nation that worshipped God alone. Have you ever heard this phrase, be in the world, but not of the world? That's not rhetorical. You can shake your head yes or say yes out loud. It's based upon John 17, verses 14 and 17 and verse 20. This is the high priestly prayer of Christ. John 17, verse 14. I have given them your word. He's talking to his father. And the world has hated them because they're not of the world even as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They're not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. Listen, as you sent me into the world, I have also sent them into the world. Verse 20, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, which is all of us. We're not to be of the world, we are to be in the world. We are to be free of worldly influence. Do not act as someone who is not saved. Our ethics, what we say, what we do, should be a light that points right back to God himself. And throughout the book of Judges, there's a cycle of God raising up a judge to free Israel from oppression, only to die. Israel turns away from God. 
That's the cycle that you see. Now, Samson's mother, we do not know her name, was not able to conceive. She was barren. You can read about that in Judges chapter 13, verse 2. She was told Samson was to be a Nazarite and deliver for Israel. A Nazarite to God from their womb. Judges chapter 13, verse 5. And that word in the Hebrew, Nazarite, simply means to be separated or consecrated. So you have to know this going into the story that since he, before he was born, he was supposed to be set apart to deliver Israel. He was going to be put aside to be used of God. Now, before we get into verse 4, we find that Samson falls in love with a Philistine girl. He insists on marrying her. His father objects because she is not of the nation of Israel. But what his father does not realize, that is God's going to take Samson's poor choices and his obsessions and turn them to his own purposes. We'll get there in a moment, a little background. Let's go back to verse 4 and 5, setting the stage for Samson's fall. It says in verse 4 that he loved a woman from the valley of Sorak. Now she's at least the third woman that Samson gets involved in. Here's some background here. Judges 14, 1 and 2. Then Samson went down to Timnah and saw a woman in Timnah, one of the daughters of the Philistines. So he came back and told his father and mother, I saw a woman in Timnah, one of the daughters of the Philistines. Now therefore, get me, or get her for me as a wife. Now he knew how his father was going to feel about this. And he knew he was supposed to be Nazareth, but yeah, he saw a Philistine woman and said, I want her, she looks good to me. Now if you haven't found this out, look at verse 1 of chapter 16 if you have your Bibles open. Look what it says. Okay, that's the first one. Here's the second one. Now Samson went to Gaza and saw a harlot there and went into her. Say what? This is Samson we're talking about. He went and saw a harlot in verse 1 of chapter 16. Rather than loving an Israelite woman from the high country of Hebron, orienting himself towards his people to the east, he attaches himself to a woman in the valley of Sorak. You have to understand, he was put aside from birth. He was supposed to be a deliverer. And at this time, the Philistines had conquered Israel. They were enslaved to Philistines, and he's now wanting to marry one of them. Ladies and gentlemen, how would you feel if your child came back and said, Hey, I want to marry this person. Look what she is told. This woman he falls in love with. The Philistine lords or the rulers go to her and say, entice him or persuade him and see where his great strength lies. They wanted to do, actually they wanted Delilah to do the same thing as his wife from Timnah. You back up in Judges chapter 14 verse 15. They tell the woman from Timnah, entice your husband so he will tell us the riddle or we will burn you and your father's house with fire. Have you invited us to impover us? Is this not? So there was a riddle, and there's a whole backline story, and for time purposes, I can't get into it. But they needed to find this riddle, so they pressure his wife to do that, or are they going to burn her father's house down? They sought to do this to learn a solution from a riddle like from before. They wanted to lie to find out where his strength came from. And specifically in verse 5, they wanted her to find out how we may overpower him that we may bind him. They blackmailed Samson's wife in their plot. However, this time, they didn't use blackmail. What did they do? Look back. 
they offered a Delilah 1,100 shekels per ruler. Now, if there's five of them, most scholars say there's five, represent the five major cities of Philistines, that would be 5,500 shekels of silver. Now, it doesn't seem a lot, but you start comparing to other transactions. It's more than three times the weight of gold retained by Gideon after his victory over the Midianite kings, Judges 8.26. It's more than the 17 shekels Jeremiah paid to purchase the field in Jeremiah chapter 32, verse 9. And it's more than the 30 shekels set as a price for a slave in Exodus chapter 21, verse 32. What I'm getting at, this is an exorbitant amount of money. A lot of money if she does this. So now we see the implementation of the plan. You have the first attempt in verses 6 through 9. She's motivated by the reward of course, maybe an undeclared sense of loyalty to her countrymen. She agrees, and she says in verse 6 to Samson, Please tell me where your great strength is, how you may be bound to afflict you or make you helpless. I wonder if she was surprised that he was so quick to answer. Look what he says. If they buy me with seven fresh cords that have not been dried, then I will become weak and be like any other man. Now, that word cord, talking about attendant. Now, this is a Nazarite. One of the Nazarites, you can't come in contact with dead bodies. It could get you unclean. Now he's telling her, I want you to go get an animal that's been freshly slaughtered, and I want you to take the attendants and wrap me up with them. Does that strike you as odd? It does me. It seems a little ridiculous. But the, the tragic thing that we see start to happen here is he's trivializing his Nazarite vow, just like with the fresh jawbone back in chapter 15, verse 15. It would be considered part of a corpse, those sinews, those tendons. But yet he's telling her, tie me up. So she does. And the result is found in verse 9. She tells him the Philistines are upon you, but he snapped the cords as a string of tow or yarn snaps when it touches fire, so his strength was not discovered. In other words, the cords disintegrated like a thread in a fire. Well, that didn't work. Now you see a second attempt in verses 10 and 12. Notice what she does. She accuses him of lying and renews her appeals to him. Now specifically in, in verse 10, she says, Now please tell me how you may be bound. Having duped Delilah with an absurd answer the first time, he now offers what might seem to be a reasonable solution. If they bind me tightly with new ropes which have not been used, then I will become weak and be like any other man. Well, Delilah ties them up. Philistines are upon you. Look, it says in verse 12, but he snapped the ropes from his arms like a thread. That's the second attempt. Now there's a third attempt, verses 13 and 14. This kind of reflects Samson's flair for hyperbole and the absurd. Look what he tells her to do. Take his seven locks of hair and weave into a loom and pin them with a pin. Then I'll become like any other man. I wonder how she pulled this off. She's going to weave his hair into a loom. And that's what she does. After, she, after he falls asleep, that's exactly what she does. And then verse 14, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he woke from his sleep and just pulled the pen out from the loom and the web. So he just got up, pulled his hair out, no big deal. Now, the fourth attempt, verses 15 and 16. After three failed attempts now, Delilah adopts a blackmailing tactic of his Timonite wife. Back in verses 14, 6, and 7. She basically says the same thing. Look what she says in verse 15. 
How can you say, I love you? I'm reading into the text a little bit there. You with me? When your heart is not with me, you have deceived me these three times and you have not told me where your great strength is. Notice she's using something. Intimacy is the key here. That's what she's using. If you really loved me, you would tell me. There cannot be real love if there's not sharing of the intimate secrets of the heart. And you haven't told me. And then she begins to nag him, if you will, and torment Samson. We're not told how long this goes on, but look at verse, verse 16. It came about when she pressed him daily with her words and urged him that his soul was annoyed to death. So Samson finally surrenders. He submits to Lila's nonstop or persistent pressure, and he tells her everything in verse 17. So he told her all that was in his heart and said to her, A razor has never come on my head, for I have been a Nazarite to God from a mother's womb. If I am shaved, then my strength will leave me, and I will become weak and like any other man. Does it strike you as odd that he shares the truth that his strength comes from God and that he has been a Nazarite since birth? This confession is remarkable for two reasons, if not more. It declares his awareness of his theological and spiritual calling. He is aware of his calling. Now, if she knew anything about Nazarite vow, Delilah must have wondered how Samson could be so casual in his relations with not only foreign women, but women of ill repute. How could he allow himself to be defiled with fresh tendons? The problem with his vow is not so much that he really violates it, is that Samson does not take it seriously. And this is where the text hit me upside the head in my study just three days ago. You know what God told me? Tim, before you start throwing rocks at Samson, let's take a good look at you. Do you take your calling seriously? Where have you fallen short? I begin to have more compassion towards Samson at that point. And when he talks about God in verse 17 in the Hebrew, he uses the word Elohim, which simply means God, mighty God. He doesn't use the covenant name of God which is Yahweh. Isn't that interesting? Well, Delilah sees that he's been truthful this time. She has been burned by three lies before, and she figures, well, he's telling me the truth. Look at verse 19. She made him sleep on her knees and called for a man and had him shave off the seven locks of his hair, and she began to afflict him, and his strength left him. And it struck me, how could Delilah get him to fall asleep on her lap without waking him up? Well, if you go back and look at chapter 16, verses 1 through 3, you will, you will see that the guards in Gaza had slept so soundly that Samson was able to remove the gates and carry them off without them waking up. Perhaps their sleep, what was divinely induced for them, is now the tables have turned to Samson. That God is putting him in that deep sleep. Look at verse 20. When she starts to afflict him, he wakes up. He says, I will go out as at other times and shake myself free. But look at the rest of that verse. But he did not know that the Lord had departed from him. 
Here's a guy set apart for God's service, and yet he had no idea that God had left him. No one has ever told Samson what he could or could not do until now, that is. It's like I said, it's tragic that Samson did not know Yahweh had left him. To be abandoned by God is the worst fate anyone can experience. Samson had been playing with his God-given talent, and now it's gone. May I say in passing, for time's sake, what talent has God given you? And yes, each each body, everybody within the sound of my voice, you have a God-given talent. When are you going to quit messing around and use that talent for the glory of God? We see in verses 21 and 22 that the sun has set for Samson. Look at verse 21. The Philistine seized him and gouged out his eyes. Samson's life had been governed by his own sight. He did what was right in his eyes. Now he's blind with his eyes being gouged out. He spent his life insulting and humiliating other people, and now he is the object of humiliation. He had the highest conceivable calling. He was divinely commissioned to deliver Israel from the Philistines. Now he's been cast down to the lowest position. He is grinding flour in a prison for others. Samson's experience, to a large extent, represents the experiences of his people. In the dark days of Judges, because of their apostasy, Israel repeatedly finds herself at the mercy of alien powers, and the question or not, The question whether or not she would survive was the real issue. You see his life kind of mirroring Israel. And if you read the Old Testament, let me tell you, share this with you. You have to look where God has the people. He makes promises and they start to go and they start falling away. They fall away, fall away. They experience the judgment of God. They repent, they confess, they come back. It's like this giant cycle that happens over and over and over again throughout the entire Old Testament. But then we see another sunrise for Samson, the last part of, the, of this text, verses 23 through 31. You see in verse 23 that the lords or the rulers or the leaders, depending on what translation you're looking at, of the Philistines had assembled, assembled to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their god, and to rejoice. Now, Gigon was recognized to be the father of Baal, the other deity that the, they would worship. Dagon's always associated with the Philistines. Now, look what they say. Our God has given Samson, our enemy, into our hands. Verse 24, when the people saw him, they praised their God for they said, Our God has given our enemy into our hands, even the destroyer of our country who has slain many of us. Uh, Excuse me, it wasn't your supposedly God. It was a true God that put all this in motion. Samson was put on public display. And when they broke out in spontaneous praise, they didn't stop. They wanted to see that trophy that their so-called God delivered into the hands. It brought Samson up. Here's a guy, cannot see. And he's put between two pillars. So he could entertain. Look what the text says. They want to be entertained or amuse them. Can you imagine being, being Samson at that moment? Your strength is gone. You cannot see. All you can hear is the humiliation being thrown at you by people you can't even see. But Samson calls out to Yahweh one more time. Verse 28. 
Although his prayer represents a last-ditch effort to secure divine aid, he does finally acknowledge the, the role of Yahweh in his life. Look at verse 28. O Lord God, please remember me and please strengthen me just this time, O God, that, my, that I may at once be avenged of the Philistines from my two eyes. Now you will see in your translations that Lord God may be a little capitalized. Guess what word he is using now? He's not saying Elohim. He's saying Yahweh Elohim. He's calling that personal name of God. But look at the prayer. There's no concern for the divine agenda, just personal vengeance. But yet it's Yahweh who needs vindication. It was Yahweh who put him aside. It's Yahweh who gave him that talent. It's Yahweh who gave him the strength. And now these people are praising their so-called false god because now they think that that false god has delivered sense in their hands. Meanwhile, it was Yahweh. Yahweh needs vindication. And let me tell you something. Throughout the entire Bible, you will see God take action because he is jealous for his holy name. He will defend his holy name. If you go back and look at the prayers that Moses and other leaders are interceding on half of people, what will the people say about you, God, if you left all these people out of Egypt which is just to destroy them. Your name is at stake. And may I have a word of caution for all of us. We have to be careful how we use the name of God. He does not take such things lightly. The Philistines' victory chants, a taunt and a challenge to Yahweh. Do you see Samson with arms extended? The, man, the boy that led him out there he has his hands against the pillars. Praise that. He utters his last words in verse 30. Let me die with the Philistines. What a tragic inversion of the office to which he had been called. The Nazarite set apart for the service of God now wants to die with the uncircumcised Philistines. Now while he may have wasted his life, in the end he does indeed begin to deliver Israel from the Philistines. With his unprecedented high calling and his arbitrary divine gifts, he has wasted his life. But he does accomplish more to God, more for God in death than he did when he was alive. Look what verse 3 said. The dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he killed in his life. 3,000 we were told in the text. What a tragic story. There's so many different ways you go in this, but I'm running out of time even when I speak. But what a tragic story. Samson is not what I considered a model to put up before a Sunday school class. He makes some big mistakes, and he sins against God. However, God still worked despite Samson's sins. It may bring us hope when we feel the shame of failure. Samson fell in love with Delilah, a Philistine woman. What he did not know that she was being paid to seduce him so the Philistines could find out the strength of his, uh, source of his strength. Imagine the shame and the pain and helplessness he must have felt when up against those pillars. And the presence of his enemies he could not see as he only could hear their mockery. And at that moment, the blind and helpless Samson, the one mighty warrior set aside for God, prayed to him. And despite all the unwise choices Samson had made that had led him through this situation, this most humiliating situation, 
His actions at that point show us that each day is another opportunity to see clearly and to put our faith into action. In the story of Samson, dear beloved, God's grace is on full display for all to see. As I said earlier, grace to bend or stoop in kindness to another as a superior to an inferior. God had every right not to answer him. But yet God in his grace still worked in and through Samson. As I wrap this up, I wonder what Samson would think of me talking about him this morning. He'd be a little maybe embarrassed, shameful. We don't like to talk about a lot of stuff. We cover stuff up, don't we? We don't talk about it, it goes away. I don't care what you've done, where you've been, you still have an opportunity to get right with God. Now, we can say, well, that he's talking to people who've never come to Christ. Yes, I am speaking to people who've never come to Christ. I'm going to invite you to come to Christ in just a moment. But I'm also talking to all of you who are Christians. God's given you a gift. You've been called out. Sort of like Samson. You're going to be in the world, but not of the world. You are God's ambassador. It says so in the New Testament. We are ambassadors of Christ who beg you, come to Christ. You represent the kingdom of God. You represent him to people out there. And you know as well as I do, there's people out there that know you're a believer, and they're going to pick on you. They're going to say stuff just to get under your skin to see what you're going to do. Is that true? And sometimes it's our own family members who can't understand why we do what we do. We're living in some perilous times. God wants to know where you stand. You're with him or you're against him. He's not going to tell you everything up front. He wants to know if you're willing. And I've said this a thousand times. God doesn't call the equipped. He equips the called. Don't waste time. Redeem the time. There is a day coming when all this will end. The great and terrible day of the Lord is called. And everything we've talked about, studied about, wondered about, pictured in our minds about, our faith will become our sight, and we will see our Jesus in all his full glory and majesty. You think you'll be sitting on the pew giving him a high five? No. I know where I'll be. Holy, holy, holy. Lord God Almighty, you are holy. I'm unworthy. Father, we thank you for your, for your word. We thank you for your amazing grace. Your love, your mercy, and your forgiveness. I can't understand it. 
all know it's true. For I experienced it and so many in this room in the sound of my voice. I pray now as your Holy Spirit continues to move among us that we will respond in obedience. That we will not waste another day, another hour, another moment, another minute, another second. That we will answer the calling that you put on all of our lives. And Father, I pray there's one here today that does not know you. They will come and put their trust and their faith in Christ as their Lord and Savior. Perhaps, Father, we need to spend time in prayer. That's fine too, Father. Whatever we need to do, time is running out. We cannot go about as business as usual. Too much is at stake. Eternity hangs in the balance. We praise you for what you have done, what you currently are doing, and what you will do in the future. In Christ's name we pray.